Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas this September 24th through the 25th at the National Faith Driven Entrepreneur Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Phil Vischer, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. I mean, I think all of our inner life comes down to our anxieties and our fantasies, right? So anxieties are the things we're afraid are going to go wrong. And if it's anxiety, it's really playing it out without reference to God's provision and grace. I once heard someone say, anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. <laughs> like sort of playing out some fear of my future and not realizing, well, even if that happened, Jesus is going to be with me in it. But I, when I'm anxious, I'm playing it out without imagining that part of it. And then fantasies are all the good things that I hope will happen, again, uh, without Jesus in them <laughs> or the good things I'd like to make happen. And I think that when your anxiety and fantasy life, and they're so intertwined, right? And we kind of bounce back and forth between them so kind of crazily quickly. When that's going crazy, when that is taking over my thoughts, when that's taking over my sleep, when it's taking over my, my night, I think it's a sign that we've lost that rhythm of work and rest. Welcome back to The Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Today we're on the road. We've got a really exciting guest. Andy Crouch is going to join us. He lives in Pennsylvania. He's part of the Praxis team. You might have heard us mention them a couple of times. Dave Blanchard was on the podcast. Just dear, dear friends of ours. I actually got to visit their office in New York a few weeks ago, so it was a super exciting time. They are an accelerator for redemptive entrepreneurs and leaders. And Andy himself is the author of several books, including Playing God, The TechWise Family, Culture Making, and many others that have been meaningful for the faith-driven entrepreneur community. We recently did a survey, and Andy came back as the guest people really wanted to hear some things from. And he was the executive editor of Christianity Today, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, and Time. Uh, Henry Rusty and I are extremely excited uh, about this chance to hear about the incredible things God's doing through Praxis and through Andy in the world. Andy, this is Henry. It's so awesome to have you on the program. When we started the podcast back in April, when we got together and talked about what it might look like, I thought, gosh, it would be really, really cool if we could have something that could have Andy Crouch on, and here you are. <laughs> and so the, the moment the whole podcast has been leading up to. Amazing. Pretty much. Yes, yes. <laughs> Please make sure that this is not anticlimactic. The pressure's all on the <laughs> I know, seriously. Yeah. The first, you know, the first ever, we have a daily blog, and we've had the daily blog, of course, since April. Every day, as you might imagine, that's what a daily blog does. And the first blog we ever had was you talking about Sabbath. And oh, so wow. I love the fact that it's come full circle and that we now have an opportunity to have you on the podcast to talk about the rule of life and talking about, among other things, Sabbath. And as I'd mentioned before, we love Praxis. And when William talks about going to the office, he talks about going to this building that Praxis is set up in the middle of Manhattan called Corum Deo, which means in Latin, I think, the heart of God. And that's a pretty special place to work, to be able to show up to work and the heart of God is pretty awesome. So grateful for you, grateful for Praxis, and grateful for your time. Thanks for being with us. I'm so glad to be part of this. It's great. 
Hey, Andy, it's Rusty. I'm going to kick us off here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of yours, too. I, I hope we get to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of your books. By the way, Weak and Strong, awesome, oh. awesome, awesome book. Dude, it, wow. it, it, uh, it carried me through many a thing that I hope we get to talk about later on. But, oh, wow. but first of all, we want to talk about the rule of life. And uh, as William and Henry said, we spend a lot of time referencing praxis, and it's awesome that you're a part of them now. And the rule of life, a lot of people may not be familiar with it. I actually have a number of copies and one in front of me right now. And it's a, it's a small little book, but chocked full of lots of great lessons. But why the rule of life is a book? And yeah. what, what was the problem that you all were trying to solve? Because that's the entrepreneurial question. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What was that problem that you wanted to solve with the rule of life? Yeah, uh, that's a great starting place. Well, I think the problem we're trying to solve are the particular spiritual challenges that come with entrepreneurship, whether you're a founder or even just an entrepreneurial kind of personality. It's a particular vocation in a way. It's a particular set of gifts, set of callings. And in the history of the church, it's often been the case that when there were communities that gathered around a particular calling, initially the monastic calling, the calling to be a monk or to be a nun, you know, to be a celibate cloistered community, very early on, as early as Augustine, I mean, really getting going with this guy Benedict of Norcia, the monastic communities realized they were not going to be able to sustain their calling and do what they were called to do together unless they had a way of living together that, in a sense, served as a kind of guide and practice of spiritual discipline, of just ways of addressing the particular opportunities and temptations of that community. And so we've sort of taken that cue and realized there is something about this community we're trying to create at Praxis and that you guys are very much part of, of what we call redemptive entrepreneurship that we think has particular gifts and particular challenges, particular burdens and particular like temptations in a way. And so this is a way, you know, in some ways, all of us are just ordinary people trying to live our Christian faith. But the insight of a rule of life is sometimes we need a little extra help <laughs> and a little extra accountability. So that's really what uh, what it's about. Well, I was fascinated that, first of all, you call it a rule of life when there's like six different points. Right. There, there, <laughs> yes, there, right, right. There, there are rules, right? And you take the rules and you put them in one page. And, you know, it has six main uh, points that you created in one page. Time, money, imagination, decision-making, power, and community. Can you just do a yeah. quick flyover of those for us and yeah. just give us a, yeah. a sense of what you were trying to make the thrust of each one of those? Yep. And, you know, these came out of a kind of series of iterative conversations, like a lot of entrepreneurial things, a lot of design processes. You start with an idea, you test it, you refine it. In some ways, Praxis has been testing this all along as we work with entrepreneurs. But we went through about a year-long process to just identify what are the areas where we need to pay particular attention to have spiritual health. So time is huge in our extremely fast-paced world for anyone, but especially for people who are trying to build things. There are often very quick decision cycles. There's a temptation to work all the time. So this first practice about time is really about a rhythm of work and rest in our lives. It's very connected to the biblical idea of Sabbath, and not just for us, but for the whole teams that we're building, because it's very easy for leaders to live a Sabbathless life themselves, but also to create a Sabbathless environment for the people that they lead. 
So time was number one. Money was the second. Entrepreneurship is very bound up with the creation of wealth. Even those who are nonprofit entrepreneurs, which we work with as well, interacting with wealth, stewarding wealth of various kinds is just such a basic part of building things in our economy, in our world. And so this is really a discipline of generosity because we believe that there's something about generosity that dethrones the idol of money in a really powerful way. So we talk about kind of our practices with really a minimum tithe, you might say a minimum practice of giving with money. Then imagination. So the first two are like very concrete, time and money, like how you spend your time, how you spend your money. But then you get to these deeper things that actually are just as important. Imagination is really about the way that almost uniquely in all of history, we have the chance <laughs> to have our imaginations shaped like if we wanted 24 hours a day by external forces, by these glowing rectangles, by all the media that come into us. And so much of entrepreneurship is about having an active and properly formed imagination. And we just realized if we don't have some disciplines around screens and entertainment and the way that happens in our lives, we're likely not to have the actual imagination we're meant to have. Because the kind of irony is the more you consume images, the less imagination you may have yourself. <laughs> so that's imagination. Then three more. Uh, decision making. A lot of leadership is making decisions. So how is our decision making surrendered to God? We have some practices for that. There's a, two final broader topics. Power. Uh, power is such an important thing for every Christian to wrestle with, and especially for people who are entrusted with the power to start things, to lead things. How are we using our power, especially for other people who may not have all the tailwinds that we have of access and opportunity? So this is really about how we give away our power at the same time as we steward it well. And then the last thing that felt really important was community, um, because as you guys know, this work, it can be very lonely. And there's something about the entrepreneurial personality, I think, that, I mean, it's often people are very gregarious. It's not a lack of like friendly relationships, but it's a lack of deep relationships that sometimes comes from busyness, that comes from the stress. And so we wanted to put forward a rule in our community about a certain expectation that we're building community outside of just the work that we're doing and that goes deeper than the work that we're doing. So I don't know if that counts as a flyover. Maybe that was like more a very slow sail through <laughs> all six, but but that's the the essence of the rule. And they do all to go together. I think that's why it is not just six rules. It's like a way of living that our community wants to live out. So I think it's a great flyover, and I think it introduces a really phenomenal framework that I think we'd all be really well served by looking at. I know that it's been a blessing in my life since you all rolled it out early last year. I'd love to unpack each one a little bit and going through yeah. it. I talked before about the fact that the first blog that we ever did on Faith Driven Entrepreneur was you talking about Sabbath because it's so important. It is so overlooked. And yeah. there's some real dangers in not following the Sabbath. And not following the Sabbath betrays some things that are going on. Unpack some of that, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a reason we put it first. And I'm so glad you guys put it first. I think it's just, it's foundational. It's also very early on in the commandments, right? When God lays out the essential commandments. After, like, worship and idolatry, the next thing God goes to is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And I think it's because we are so tempted to become autonomous, self-providing, independent of God above all, but other people as well. 
And the Sabbath is like this circuit breaker, I think, on all the major idolatries of our life, that if once a week we, in a sense, throw that circuit breaker and shut off that path to significance that comes with work, that path to provision that comes with work, the sense of security that comes from having done a day's work— And one day a week, and, you know, there's more to Sabbath than one day a week, but I think it does start with just this pattern of one day a week, having a day when I'm not providing for myself, I'm not achieving my own significance, I'm not doing anything that sort of secures me in the world. Instead, I'm receiving, and I'm with other people, I'm resting, I'm feasting, I'm worshiping. And at least in my life, I I had the great gift, really, of realizing that Sabbath mattered like my first year of college. I didn't grow up in a particularly observant family of any kind, kind of a church-growing family, but not active, perhaps, in our faith in any real way. But I became an active Christian in high school, and I got to college and realized, oh, I need to figure out, like, everyone around me is working all the time. <laughs> so am I going to do that, or am I going to honor this uh, and remember this Sabbath practice? And I decided to, to do it. Um, Um, which made me very lonely on Sundays because everybody, (laughs) Sundays was my Sabbath. Everyone else was, you know, working uh, frantically trying to get ready for the week. And I took every Sunday off, but it ended up being the best thing that I did. And I've just found if you have that rhythm in place, a lot of other things fall in place. And if you don't have it in place, and there have been times in my life where I really did not keep it, you feel it in every area of your life. So that's why Sabbath is where we started. (laughs) We had a podcast interview a while ago with a guy named Vic Ho, and I think yeah. in the second part of our interview with him, he talked about how finally observing the Sabbath five or six years in, at a time mm-hmm. when he thought he was actually most pressured, it was almost because he was so busy that he finally said, I've got to yes. stop. Yes. And that he found a special thing about realizing that up until then, he'd relied on his own work. And he was tempted to think that his success had come from him, and wow. he hadn't left enough room for God to work. And so when he did that, he got freed up and then everything actually started falling in place for his business. Now, I suppose that doesn't happen every time for an entrepreneur, but what are the dangers of relying on yourself too much if you're not following Sabbath? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think all of our inner life comes down to our anxieties and our fantasies, right? So anxieties are the things we're afraid are going to go wrong. And if it's anxiety, it's really playing it out without reference to God's provision and grace. I once heard someone say, anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. (laughs) Like sort of playing out some fear of my future and not realizing, well, even if that happened, Jesus is going to be with me in it. But I, when I'm anxious, I'm playing it out without imagining that part of it. And then fantasies are all the good things that I hope will happen, again, uh, without Jesus in them, (laughs) or the good things I'd like to make happen. And I think that when you're anxiety and fantasy life, and they're so intertwined, right? And we kind of bounce back and forth between them so kind of crazily quickly. When that's going crazy, when that is taking over my thoughts, when that's taking over my sleep, when it's taking over my my night, I think it's a sign that we've lost that rhythm of work and rest. And that's not to say, I mean, you look, the work that you guys do, the work that we do at Praxis that I do is hard work, and there are sleepless nights just part of it. But there is a difference between like a paralyzed anxiety or a sort of sense of being given over to fantasy and just the hard work that is part of our lives. And and it really comes down to, is there a time during the week when I'm able to lay it down? And if not, I've probably lost my Sabbath observance. That's really good. I love that. 
anxieties and fantasies. <laughs> I think what Jesus is, is most concerned about is like, what are the content of your fears and what are the content of your hopes? And are they the things that he would fear for you and the things that he would hope for you? And I think we are meant to fear things. We're meant to fear uh, losing our life, right? Jesus says, be afraid of losing your life. What, what would it profit you if you gained everything and lost your life? Um, we're meant to hope for things. It's just that we're meant to hope for them in this sort of trust and dependence rather than independence and self-provision. And for me, Sabbath is just the one thing that, you know, it's the linchpin. There's other practices that definitely help, but there's something about this rhythm that keeps me hoping and fearing the right things more of the time than, than I would otherwise. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I'd be lying if I wasn't thinking about all my anxieties right now without Jesus. Um, well, of course. <laughs> of course. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pop out of that and <laughs> just for a moment, and I'm going to come back to another one that I really think I've heard you talk about and I want to dig into, which is power, which is a word uh-huh. I assume you chose very intentionally. And I have also heard you talk about the analogy to gleaning in the book of Ruth and how that plays out in power. And I know you go deep into this in playing God, but could you give us a quick overview of where you came from from that perspective? Yeah. Well, so power, there's two ways to think about power. One is the ability to make people do things they don't want to do. (laughs) That's power as coercion. And the other is to bring into being things that don't exist, and that's power as creation. And both are realities, actually, of leadership. I mean, the reality of leadership is sometimes we have to use coercive power. This happens when we have to terminate someone from employment. It happens when we have to make really hard decisions about which direction the business is going. And sometimes you just have to choose things that not everyone in your system wants to do and use your power to do that. But good leaders, great leaders all know that the real power is the power to bring something into being that doesn't exist. And that can't be coerced. You can't force people to create. In fact, actually, part of the problem with anxiety and fantasy is how they short circuit creativity. And real creativity comes from this deep trust of other people, of God. And out of that comes a power that is so much more powerful than the ability to coerce. And that's the ability to draw forth from the world possibility that was there, but that unless you acted, it it, it would never have been realized. So this is a very fundamental part of being a leader, being an entrepreneur, in some ways of being a human being. Everyone's meant to have it. And what this discipline in the rule, what we're really paying attention to is that there's a real danger in our positions, which is that we end up with sometimes more power than we can handle, (laughs) Uh, not just coercive power, but also creative power. And there's this really interesting practice, which, as you mentioned, is it's found in a number of places in the Bible. It's in the Hebrew law, the law given to Israel, but it's seen acted out in the book of Ruth. And it's this really interesting practice called gleaning. So the idea of gleaning was, you know, one of the main forms of power, in a a sense, in the ancient world was agricultural, the growing of food, the growing of crops, which um, is hard work and also, in a sense, creative work. You're letting the fields grow. They produce at the harvest time. You get to reap the benefits. And the law said, when you go out to harvest the fruit of all this work you've put in, all this power that you've expended through the growing season— Leave the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor, the widow, the stranger in your land will be able to harvest. 
And it's such an interesting concept because it sounds sort of like charity in that they don't have anything and you're giving them something, but what you're giving them is not actually the food per se. You're actually giving them the opportunity to themselves exercise power and have meaningful work. Does that make sense? Like as a distinction, like if I just harvest everything and then I hand you something, you haven't gotten to do one of the basic things that human beings are made to do, which is work well and hard in the world. But if I let you glean, that is I leave something undone, then you get to come alongside and you now have the dignity of, in this case, providing food for your family or in Ruth's case, providing for herself and her mother-in-law at Naomi. But for us, we think that should go further in leaders' lives so that what we're doing as leaders is we're constantly actually looking for things we don't have to do (laughs) that someone else who has less power in the system could actually do. So rather than me taking every opportunity to write something for Praxis, maybe I should look out for a colleague who has the ability to maybe write a section of the rule of life and actually knows a lot about it, but I could easily be given that assignment. And instead, I need to proactively say, hey, why don't you take this assignment? And that practice of gleaning feels pretty essential uh, in our world of inequitably distributed power, unevenly distributed power, for those of us who end up with a lot of it to just constantly leaving things undone so that other people can actually take up the power they're meant to take up. Thank you for for sharing that, Andy. And I've heard you tell a story I'm going to ask you to tell about how this played out in your own life, because we really like to get practical um, at some huh. level. I, I would love for you to tell the story about the Wall Street Journal article. And I'm going to set up, this is where I get to set up Andy being incredibly humble. And then he tells a story about being incredibly humble. But really, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. But really, it's just such a great practical story of this working out in real life. So I would love for you to share that with our audience. Sure. Yeah, it was a very vivid moment. And it's a, in some ways a humbling thing to tell because it just was a moment when God made it so clear what I was supposed to do. So back in 2011, I, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal right after the death of Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple. And it was an amazing opportunity as a writer, as a journalist. Uh, the day after he died, they called. They said, would you write a piece on kind of the bigger meaning of his life? And it ran. It was 1,800 words, which is incredibly long for a newspaper piece. It was the whole cover of the review section on Saturday. Big deal, big break, big opportunity journalistically. And one of the things you get out of that, of course, is a relationship with an editor as a writer. And so then you can stay in touch and they you know, pitch you other ideas, you can pitch them ideas. And, you know, honestly, as writers, (laughs) if we followed our anxieties and fantasies, you would say we kill for this, right? This is what we're going for. This is the break we're looking for. So that piece ends up doing really well. It's like one of the most read things on the Wall Street Journal's website that year. Uh, And a couple months later, they call and they're like, there's this football quarterback named Tim Tebow. Have you heard about him? (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, I think so. Yeah. Christian, right? Like, could you write us another essay on like the meaning of Tim Tebow? Because this was right at the, I forget the time exactly this, but I think he'd just been drafted maybe. And it was his moment, right? And the Wall Street Journal wanted this sort of big think piece about Tim Tebow. Okay, so here's here's the thing. To get a second chance to write this essay in the big sort of front page essay within three or four months, it never happens. It's an unbelievable just journalistic opportunity for my career. The other thing is, I know nothing about football. I've heard of Tim Tebow, of course, because he's a Christian. I really know nothing more about him. I would be making it up. And every temptation that came my direction was, well, hey, look, I can make things up. I'm a writer, right? That's what journalists do. Like, we find out about things. I can write this. And then I remembered that a friend of mine, a fellow journalist named Patton Dodd, 
had actually just written and was about to publish a little ebook about Tim Tebow. Patton's from Denver. He's a huge football fan. He'd followed Tim Tebow's whole career. And he had this great little kind of short book about the significance of Tim Tebow's faith and the way he lived that out. And I realized, oh, what I really have to do is write the editor and say, I won't write the piece, but here's the person who can. And I did. And Patton got the assignment. His article came out. So the really killer thing, my Steve Jobs piece was like number two in readership that year on the Wall Street Journal. Patton's piece ended up being number one because apparently people prefer to read about live quarterbacks than dead technology founders. And he did such a great job on it. And it was so good. It was so much better than anything I would have written. And I was so glad I did it. And in a way, it wasn't even a hard decision. It was like, oh, this is the right thing to do. Let Patton, in a sense, glean this. Uh, and he'll do with it something way better than I could have done. That's wow. Um, I want to I stay on this gleaning thing for one more second, because entrepreneurs, are, especially founders, are always feeling like they have to do everything. Right. Uh, so any of us who spend time with entrepreneurs early on, they'll eventually, inevitably ask the question, what should I be doing and what should I not be doing? Because it feels like I do everything. Uh, and so yeah. can you take gleaning and delegation and bring those two together for a moment for our listeners to try to figure that out? Because I think there's a gift in the message of gleaning about how to delegate. Yeah, I think there is. And I think that it involves recognizing that there are actually untapped capacities in the people around you, maybe especially the people who don't look like they have as much to offer as others. I mean, this would have been the case in the ancient world. You know, the poor, the widow, the, the stranger, this random person from Moab who comes to your town, it doesn't look like they have a lot to offer. But actually, when you make room for them, maybe they will actually have something to contribute. Certainly, that ends up being true for the story of Ruth and Boaz, because <laughs> they end up being ancestors of King David, actually. And Ruth becomes this incredibly important contributor to the story of the people of Israel and the kingly line. And I think by way of metaphor, I guess, that when we as leaders don't sort of suck all the energy and effort up into ourselves and think, oh, well, I'm the one who knows how this needs to be done. I'm the one who knows the level of excellence. There are some things that the leader has to do and that no one else can do, especially early on in an organization. But the transition from founder to builder and someone who can actually build a large and growing team so depends on your ability to give away power and to recognize, especially in people who don't necessarily initially look like they've got what it takes to realize, no, they do have what it takes. And I actually think this is what makes great leaders is that they know what to give away to who, <laughs> to whom. And if you don't know how to do that, you are going to limit the scale of what you're going to be able to build quite radically because you're quickly going to run out of your own, your own capacities, especially if you're practicing rule number one, which is Sabbath. <laughs> so, you know, gleaning is very connected to Sabbath, actually. It's, it's another way of laying down things we could hold on to and realizing, actually, if I let go of this, um, the result is going to be multiplicative and just generative and far more than if I had tried to do it myself. So on the other side of Sabbath leading into power and gleaning, on the other side of the gleaning spectrum, I think, is money. And you talk about money here, too. And as I reflect on this, as I read through it, I realize, of course, that each one of these different topics would be an incredible podcast episode, if not a podcast series. And so we're not doing the type of justice here that it deserves. But love for you to talk a bit about money 
And one of the things I want to point out for our listeners is that you all have done such a great job of rolling out a format of this where you talk about kind of a preamble about how to think about money in a redemptive way, which I think is really good. And then you have a baseline practice. And yeah. they have these reach practices. And so here in money, you talk about as a baseline, we commit to give away a minimum of 10% of our gross income with special attention to the needs of the materially poor. Generosity and money are so important to us because we talk a lot about money on the podcast. We just had Alan Barnhart on the show and he talked about his uh, cool. story. Um, talk to us more about money and a whole bunch <laughs> of ways you might take it. You know, actually in the beginning of the preamble, you talk about the fact that for-profit entrepreneurs are particularly potentially prey to money and the worship of money, but yeah. then also and that not-for-profit entrepreneurs around money and abundance and scarcity and around benefactors who have lots of money and envy and <laughs> also that money, money impacts lots of the entrepreneurial journey. Just riff on money. Oh, man. You know, actually, on that point, I honestly feel when I think about the for-profit folks I've been around, the non-profit folks I've been around, I wouldn't say that one group or the other is more or less concerned with money. You, you might think, well, you know, non-profit leaders, they have often sacrificed financially, you know, compensation-wise and other ways. But I don't find that they're less preoccupied with money. <laughs> if anything, it might be even the reverse. So uh, Anxiety. If you want to talk about anxiety. Right, yes, exactly. And, and I do think what you said, Henry, about envy of those who have chosen other paths who have perhaps generated significant wealth through the work they've done, through the structures of their work. Uh, it, it's a reality for almost everyone. And I, I just really believe giving is the thing that breaks the power of the idol of mammon, really, to call it what Jesus called it, because money is really about control. So money is basically just a form of power. It's just a form of power that has three characteristics that almost no other kind of power has. It's countable, storable, and fungible, to use slightly technical terms. And if you took like basic economics at any point, you would have learned it's a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. And that's actually all I'm saying in slightly shorter words, but maybe not clearer words. It's countable. You can you know how much you have. Most power, you don't know how much you have. Like, I'm on this podcast with you. You've given me a certain amount of power. How much power? I don't know. I, I don't know how to count how much power being on this podcast confers. It's something. Lots but... and lots of power. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can send you a, an, an anal analysis of that. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's huge. Right. Well, <laughs> in fact, in most of what I do, most days, I don't really know how much power I have in that moment. But I can count my money. And then I can store it. It's storable, which I can't do. Like with the incredible power you're conferring on me with this podcast, I only have for the, you know, 30, 45 minutes, whatever that we're talking. And that's, it's gone. But with money, I can keep it for later. And then I can turn it into other things. It's fungible. It's exchangeable. And this just makes it the most dangerous form of power, <laughs> because in a way, something you can count, store, and exchange is something you can control. And we are all in no small part in life to gain a sense of control and through control, often a sense of safety. And um, most of the things you can do with money, investing it, spending it, saving it, you keep control of it or its uh, effects. But when you give it, you abandon control. 
And I really think that's the secret of generosity, that when you give, you break the power of this imagination, this fantasy, that if I have enough of this and if I can count it and store it and change it for things I want, that I'll be okay. There's just something about giving that does that. So, Henry, you mentioned this kind of really cool thing. I didn't come up with it by any means, but that the team sort of came up with as we worked on this rule. We didn't want to just put down like one rule for everyone and stop. We did want to identify some baselines. And with money, we feel like a 10% tithe seems very biblical and also just practically seems like kind of a minimum, at least for our community, feels like a minimum that we should be uh, aiming for. But then we tried to identify, like, what are reach practices, like things that would go beyond the baseline? And for money in the rule, we talk about things like we have members of our community who pray to God uh, on a regular basis that they would be able to increase both the absolute and the relative amount that they give over time. So both increase their percentage giving over time from their income, but actually that God would bless them in such a way that they're able to, to absolutely increase their, their giving both at the same time. Like, why not pray that I could become more and more capable of generosity? <laughs> like, that would be a great thing to pray. Another thing that I've done and others in our community have done with bigger numbers of zeros behind it is tithing not on income or not just on income, but on assets. So this is, you know, in a sense, tithing on your stocks rather than on your flows, to use more economic jargon, because there's something about having that storehouse of assets, whatever my income may be, that can become a temptation to say, I mean, just like the guy says in Jesus' parable, you know, look, I've got everything stored up. I've got what I need, which is a kind of fantasy I'm provided for, when in fact, I don't even know what the next day holds for me or my family, and I, I'm not in control of it. And there's something about the decision, which my wife and I have done two times in the last 10 years, that we're going to take our total net worth and tithe on that, that is unbelievably freeing in a way that just tithing on income or even a higher percentage than 10% has not had the same power. So these are some of the things that we encourage people to experiment with. We don't necessarily think they're for every person at every moment, but uh, we all need to be figuring out how to make generosity a major feature of how we relate to money. Um, one word that was missing for me in the rule of life um, around money was church. Was oh, that, interesting. <laughs> you know, because we talk about tithing and yeah. in, in the gross, you know, on your gross 10%, which is a familiar message right. that we get. And, and also to, to help the materially poor, which is a familiar message. But the word church was missing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, really good question. I mean, you know, I think we did talk about it, and church shows up very much in the section of the rule on community, that we want everyone in our community to be part of a local church community. And we would certainly, I think, absolutely expect that giving in a significant way to your church is part of that. Um, you know, it's tricky with the outsized wealth that some forms of entrepreneurship provide or create. I have a few friends. I mean, I have friends who, you know, have assets in the billions and and sometimes they're members of very small churches, like they're not necessarily members of mega churches. And for them to, in a sense, burden uh, a local church with 10% of even just their income um, would it would not necessarily lead to a healthy situation, I think. It's fair to say with that church. Now, that's a real extreme. I mean, I can count the number of people who have that problem on the fingers of one hand that I know personally. But I think we decided to emphasize church in the community section and emphasize the relationships that church provides 
sides. And where your treasure is, your heart will be, and where your heart is, your treasure should be. So if your heart is in your church, certainly for Catherine and me, the number one giving line item for us is our local church. But we didn't spell that out in the rule. But you're right. It's not spelled out. And maybe that's—we need to think about that. We will think about that. Well, I think that's interesting. You know, as I read it and as I look into it, I am confronted by two different things that have kind of been top of mind for me. One is that there's some research that came out, and I should know this better than I do. I think it was from Barna talking about how much money, how much giving from Christ followers is consumed by the local church and the overhead. And that's an incredibly important institution and should absolutely be one that we all support. And yet I think that oftentimes we miss the kind of Isaiah 58 perfect fast or the right type of worship about taking care of the injustice outside of the church as well. And I like the fact that you talk about taking care of the materially poor because we're led to do that in scripture. And yet I also think it's important to give the local church. So yeah, it's a great topic. It's a really good point. I mean, the reality of charitable giving in the U.S., that is giving that falls under the tax-exempt category, is that the great majority of it, I'm talking about all giving, not just religious, goes to benefit people who are actually doing quite well. I mean, you know, you can give to the symphony, you can give to the art museum, and a lot of church giving, unfortunately, is actually just, uh, our church provided a wonderful youth program for our kids. I'm glad, I'm so glad we were able to support that financially. That's not exactly giving in an Isaiah 58 way to make sure my kids have a great youth program and kids like them who go to these suburban schools that surround our particular church. So that's why we felt like maybe it was more important to emphasize, let's let's make sure whether it's through our church or otherwise, that our giving is really going to the ones that God declares his greatest concern for. And you can't just assume that a local church budget is going to do that, though many churches have great ways of doing that. That's a great explanation. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to talk about, uh, as we come towards the end of our time here, unfortunately, one of the things we love doing is highlighting God's work and what he is doing through other people and other incredible resources, such as the Rule of Life and others. But we're really looking forward to release of your podcast. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be doing? Oh, man, it's been so fun. Yes, I'm playing both sides of the mic, you might say, these days. And uh, I love these kinds of shows where I get to just show up. But I'm also uh, part of a group producing a podcast at Praxis. We've actually got two in production, but the one that I'm working on is called The Redemptive Edge. And it's just interviews with members of our community kind of telling their story of redemptive entrepreneurship, which takes super different forms, you know, from a businessman named Pete Oaks, who's spent a lifetime building businesses and then positioning them to employ people who seem unemployable, especially people who are imprisoned or incarcerated to uh, this incredible young woman, Sarah Miller, who's a nonprofit entrepreneur in the Bronx, who has this incredible story of moving at age 19 to the South Bronx and just embedding herself in community there and learning from that community and eventually starting something really cool there. So what we'll do, we'll release this in spring of 2019, is uh, just a series of episodes that just kind of take people through the story and the choices that come with trying to do entrepreneurship redemptively in every sector. Yeah, so podcast.praxislabs.org will be the home of it when it launches. And and the rule, by the way, I mean, people can Google all these things, of course, but rule.praxislabs.org is where the rule of life is found online. Yeah, and we'll, we'll make sure to link to every one of those too. So if you're cool. listening, please come to faithrunentrepreneur.org and check out the podcast inventory. And there will be links to all these things that Andy's talking about. And the absolute last thing we like to do, a little bit of a thought <laughs> exercise is we Uh-oh. always want to point back. Yep, yep, we're going to see <laughs> setting you up here. But we love to point people back to Scripture, right? And we love uh-huh. to point people back to the Word of God. And so the question we like to ask is, 
where is God speaking to you right now? Maybe today, uh, maybe in the last few weeks, maybe in the last few months, and potentially maybe a story or a verse that you overlooked in the past. And as we uh, know, the Word of God is alive and always moving. Just wondering, where is He talking to you today and uh, in this season that you find yourself in? Wow, it's really interesting that you asked that because— on many days in my life, I would have to like scramble for a suitably spiritual answer to that question. <laughs> um, we happen to be speaking today, we're recording this on Ash Wednesday, which I observe as, a, as an Anglican Christian. And I mean, I, I start every day with morning prayer, but today I start with the readings for Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. And the psalm that is always used on this day is a very familiar psalm, Psalm 103, which starts out, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And it's this incredibly comprehensive psalm of gratitude, of finitude. So this is the one that says our days are like grass. They pass away very quickly. The wind blows and it's gone. Of desperate need for forgiveness. This is the great psalm of God's forgiveness. And it just struck me I have read the psalm many times, but I don't actually know it by heart. And so what I'm going to do during the 40 days of Lent is read it every day and memorize it. And I have not been a great memorizer of Scripture, I'm afraid, although I think I've absorbed quite a bit, and a lot of it is lodged in my memory kind of just by repetition over 30 years of active faith. But this time, I'm going to do this on purpose, <laughs> because I realized I really need this psalm. I, I need every part of it. I'm 51 years old, the section about just how short our lives are, and yet God watches over us and preserves what we do. It just feels very significant to me. So Psalm 103 is going to be my companion actively for the next 40 days, and then I hope it will be like deep in my heart and memory for the rest of my life. I think that that's awesome. I think you just got yourself reinvited to our podcast on the Tuesday after Easter <laughs> to see how things went. Yeah, we're we're, de we're definitely bringing you on for at least about sixty seconds to see if you can uh, recite from memory. Exactly, exactly. Yep, yep. Take away my my prompts and just see if I know it. I really hope I'll. I plan to know it by then. So feel free to call me up. That's beautiful. <laughs> Andy, thank you for this. It's a great privilege. I love doing that. I hope that we're able to point a lot of people to the podcast work that you guys are going to be doing. And you're a great encouragement to us. And I know you're a great encouragement, a great asset for the larger faith-driven entrepreneurial community. And so thanks for spending time with us. Oh, man, it has been so great to talk with you guys. So grateful for what you do. And the fact that we all got to do this together is pretty amazing and awesome. So thanks. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it has been extraordinarily rewarding to see people come into the site and the podcast now from more than 100 countries. That's right, 100. It's very important to us, of course, to make sure that we hear from you. So our hope is that you'll feel as if this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you for your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and you want to share with others. To do that, please visit faithdrivenentrepreneur.org backslash survey and share with us your feedback. You know, this podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, program directors Nicole Dickens and Adora Jones. Music by Carl Cadwell, and you can hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm -hmm.